0: Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Story. I'm the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, which is our statewide arts agency. Um, I'm based in Jackson, Mississippi, and super excited to be here with all of you today. Welcome to the 2021 Mississippi Book Festival. So although we are, of course, bummed that we can't meet in person at the Capitol this year, we are grateful for the opportunity to have our panels virtually, and maybe even more people will be able to tune in and hear about the incredible authors and stories that are coming out of our state right now. So I just want to say a quick thank you to Holly Lang and to Ellen Daniels and the board of the Mississippi Book Festival and all the other staff and volunteers that did work very hard to create an in-person event again this year and then for the second year in a row have to move to a virtual format. Um, Also, just thank you to all our panelists that are here today, which I'll introduce in just a minute. Um, And we today in this panel will be talking about A lively legacy, spirited stories and storied characters are so interwoven into the Southern fabric, and as are our top-notch authors, and they flesh out the most entertaining and intriguing threads throughout the state through their storytelling and their, their new books. So excited to be able to talk about this today. And you'll hear many stories that will help us remember different periods of significance in the state of Mississippi, which varies in decade and region. You'll hear about individual lives, their unique influences on their communities, and even some sports teams. And we will be learning about the lasting impact of physical buildings and the stories that they have seen and um, can still share with us today. So um, each author will give a brief introduction here in just a few seconds, and then we'll let them um, dive in and sharing their stories from their books. So I will go ahead and go around and introduce everyone. So we have Lee Harper, who wrote Tiny Oxford. Lee, if you want to just say hello and, and say a few words about your book,
2: hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Lee Harper, and my husband and son and I have been in Oxford for a little over 20 years now. I made the pieces that are in tiny Oxford. Um, My friend Pablo Johnson helped put it together for me, but it's a lot of old buildings and places, favorite places here in Oxford, most of which are not around anymore, but hold lots of memories and fun stuff for people.
1: Thank you. Thanks for being here. Sure. Jennifer Jennifer Bond,
0: who wrote Buildings of Mississippi. Yeah, hi. I'm Jennifer Bond. I am a chief architectural historian at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. In fact, today I'm celebrating my 25th year at MDAH, uh, and I am excited to talk about my book, uh, Buildings of Mississippi, which uh, was 10 years in the making. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a field guide
1: to the architecture of Mississippi. Excellent. Thank you. And Vincent Venturini, who wrote One Direction Home, A History of South Jackson.
3: Uh, yes. Uh, One Direction Home is the story of South Jackson, uh, basically as it developed between 1945 and 1975, but of greater importance for the meeting today. Um, I go back to 1845 uh, and cover the real historic beginnings, uh, kind of the prehistory, and it's really very important parts of Mississippi history. So um, I'm looking forward to talking about that.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And James Crockett, who wrote Rulers of the SEC, Ole Miss and Mississippi State, 1959
4: to 1966. Yes, I'm I'm Jim Crockett. Uh, I'm a retired accounting professor, but I teach part-time at Ole Miss. I live in Madison, Mississippi. Uh, writing has been an avocation of mine for several years, and I, this is my fourth book published by the University Press of Pressel, Mississippi. The other three involve corruption in Mississippi. This one is a labor of love. It, it involves sports, but Mississippi really did dominate the SEC over an eight-year period. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you guys again for being here, and we will go ahead and jump into hearing more from
2: Lee Harper. Um, mine really started. Well, first of all, I've been a freelance artist for about thirty years and made all kinds of things. But a couple of years ago, when Ron Shapiro passed away, he's our cultural ambassador. He was here, local legend uh, for the holiday. Christmas auction at the Yatna Patafa Arts Council every year. They're huge fundraiser artists donate things to help raise money for them. And I thought, huh, it would be really cool to make a small replica of the Hoka. And honestly, it was as simple as that. And I reached out to people that I knew hung out there that may have had photos in their junk drawers, because this is when we all had our little roll up cameras you know, and you had to go get it developed at the drugstore and hope they turned out. So it kind of took a lot of, of effort to find them, but um, made several friends doing that. And um, the stories and emotions and the flood of uh, messages I got just posting it just in progress was incredible. Um, People that met there, people that saw late-night movies, people that came over from the gin, what they ate, infamous stories, um, people that met their future husbands or wives there. It was just amazing. Um, They tell stories about things that happened outside the building, inside, whatever it was. Um, But I thought, wow, this really tapped into something amazing. And then somebody asked, would you make me a gin? Uh, then would you make a Dino's pizza? And all of a sudden I was making all these pieces, all of which are gone now, except for one in the book that are genuinely, if you were here in the eighties and nineties or grew up here, um, they're just integral to your, your memories and, and your heart. Um, Smitty's, you went there for a big breakfast to work off a hangover Um, I've had people send me letters that say, thank you for making this. My parents met at Dino's, um, in 19, whatever, and then told me what they had every time they went there, you know, just things like that. And it's just been, it's been amazing. Um, I've met so many people, heard tons of family stories, um, gotten to go into really fun places that I typically wouldn't have been able to go into. Um, but it's it's really been fun. And I'm a huge genealogist, history nerd, sentimental sap about any items, even just little antiques, not, not just the buildings, but like, for instance, when my grandparents' house burned down, when it was still smoldering, I went and grabbed some of the original six or seven inch nails just to have, because I don't know, like things hold stories and memories. They have a significance to me. I don't think they're just junk and they're not just wood or, you know, roofs and stuff, but um, it's been really fun and it's branched out. Um, I'm making things for people all over the place. You know, if they have any kind of sentimental value for someone like their parents old home or the old bar, you know, that they used to love. Um, It's been wonderful. Honestly, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. I'm having an absolute blast. (laughs) And I got to work with Jennifer on buildings in Mississippi Mm -hmm. and we did some really cool pieces for that. Um, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but when we did the Medgar Evers house, she told me, because I started looking at the house, I'm like, wait, there's no front door on this house. Like every house has a front door usually. And she said that was by design that he requested to not have a front door for safety reasons uh, because their family was always in such danger, obviously, and <laughs> in, in, during that time period, um, And what they would do is park all the way in the garage and everybody would pile out of the passenger front passenger door to that garage door. And the night that he was killed was a night that he got out of the driver's side door. Um, which I just think that's power, so powerful. And I had never heard that story before. I thought, Oh, Oh my God. Am I the only person that doesn't know that? But a lot of people have not heard that, but it, it's just crazy you think architecture is telling the story and it really does when you start looking at all these places like which set of stairs are more worn because people preferred you know there's a whole story to literally everything that you can point to um and it's just endlessly fascinating to me i love it that's great
1: and so this book um called tiny oxford so it's it's was it a the first collection that you had of all of these houses, or did you start it, it working? Is, on?
2: It is. I already have several for volume two, and with the work I've been doing lately, I'd love to do a tiny Mississippi. Um, I'm trying to get places. Well, I've got a lot of commissions that are from all over the place, but I'm also picking things that like scenes where you can't quite put it into words, but kind of evoke cool. You know, wonderful feelings from childhood that you just thought were neat. Not, you know, Melon's kitchen, but I don't know what I'm trying to say. But um, I know it when I see it.
1: <laughs> um, what is your process like? Do you what materials are you using to create these houses?
2: I use a lot of just scrap wood, um, foam board, hard cardstock, um, wire. Paint. I even get people to give me their old birdhouses, anything with like actual old wood, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, a lot of the bases that I use um, are old boards from the barn at my great grandparents house, which to me just adds mm-hmm. another element
1: wow.
2: of, you know, authenticity, or at least, I mean, I may be the only one that knows that, but I like it. You know, and it's weathered. It's not a new piece from Home Depot. Um, oh, I use coffee stars. Coffee stars can literally be little bitty floor uh wood floor. Um, they can be your lumber yard <laughs> or like a tongue depressor. you know, it's really thin but wide. Toothpicks. I made a tiny log cabin out of toothpicks one time, yes. It's an illness at this point, Um, but it worked perfectly. You know, Um, it's just fun. I have so little patience for most things, but working on these, I never get bored. It's just, it's worth every little pain in the butt is worth it. It turn it is totally worth it. It looks amazing.
1: That's so cool. So what's, what has been the most intricate, uh, house or building that you've done so far?
2: Um, the hardest one I've done was for Jennifer and that was the standard life building skyscraper and it involved a lot of math and fractions and exactness and my style. I was very proud of it, but my style, like the co monkeys and the blue front cafe where you can see weathering and stuff worn and like. Poe Monkeys has all those crazy signs and, you know, pulleys and like crazy scratch uh, tin, you know, plugging up holes and stuff. That's more, I'm more (laughs) freestyling, but I am very proud of the Standard Life building. Um, And I learned a lot about that. And we lived in Jackson for a while. I didn't know anything about that building. but um,
0: If anybody wants to see it uh, in person, uh, they can see the Standard Life building at Lemuria. Uh it's it's still on display there. And the Evers House is on display at the two museum shop. And Poe Monkey's is at Turnrow Books in Greenwood.
2: And they're really fun in person. Um it's they, hard, really hard to get pictures that yeah. do them justice. And most people say, um, gosh, this is a lot smaller than I thought it was gonna be. <laughs> but they're they're really fun.
1: That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's And um, we look forward to seeing more in your next book. And in the meantime, uh, Tiny Oxford is out and can be enjoyed and purchased anywhere. I've certainly seen it a lot around the state. So it's been fun to get to hear from you.
2: Sure. I'm happy to be here.
1: Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. All right, and we will move over in the theme of buildings to Jennifer. Yeah,
0: it's been so fun working with Lee because she's got such a passion at that very uh, artistic and granular level of the buildings, Uh, so that has been a lot of fun. Um, But uh, Buildings of Mississippi is is another way to see buildings that are still here. Uh, All of the buildings, at least when it was written and published, uh, were still standing uh this book is one of a series uh published by the University of Virginia Press for the Society of Architectural Historians uh, and it's called Buildings of the United States so they're trying to uh cover the United States with a series of field guides to architecture um but it's not just art it's not just high style architecture you know we we think a lot of of the white column mansions and we've had pilgrimages uh To antebellum and 19th century houses around the state for quite a while so a lot of people are familiar with those but uh, buildings in Mississippi comes all the way to the present Uh, the the newest building is the two museums Uh, I think the library commission is is an entry so very recent buildings are in there as well as the whole 20th century which sometimes gets overlooked but really when you look at the Mississippi, uh, the history of Mississippi. That was really when Mississippi was booming. There was an uh, oil boom. Uh, there was quite a bit of uh, population growth. Uh, Jackson, you know, doubled and tripled in size quite a bit over the decades in the 20th century. So there was just a whole lot of building going on. So you can really see the story of Mississippi in this very physical way as you go around the state. And I hope that. That this book will uh, represent that, um, from very high style buildings to buildings like Po' Monkeys that are are kind of handmade buildings that uh, still really represent an aspect, a really important aspect of Mississippi culture uh, and history. We have a lot of civil rights sites in the book. Uh, a lot of black neighborhoods are represented. So we really tried to integrate uh, black and white buildings, black and white spaces, uh, so that people who were going to a town that they may be really familiar with, they may have never looked at a certain building. And so hopefully this will give people a chance to really uh, see things for the first time that they've maybe looked at a hundred times. Um, I worked on this book, uh, with Michael Fazio, who was a, uh, Founding member of the School of Architecture at Mississippi. State. Um he was such a wonderful man and mentor and a great architectural historian. He had won many awards for his publications. So he's very experienced in in publication. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2020. Uh, so he's not able to be here, but uh, he was working on the book till the very end and uh and really put his mark in the book as well. So it was great to be able to work with him for so long on the book. Um, We also worked with Mimi Miller of the Historic Natchez Foundation so that a lot of new recent research on Natchez and the Natchez district has made its way into the book for the first time uh, in publication. So we're really excited about that. Um, And in addition to entries that are arranged geographically, Uh, there's also an introduction that that goes through uh, more in a narrative form the stories of uh, how we came to have so many courthouse squares in the state and uh, who were the people who built these buildings, you know, that we know a lot about the people who may have lived in them, but who was the architect, who was the builder, who was the mason, and uh, so we have some, a lot of representation of as much as we can, because a lot of times that's not, uh, that's not in the newspapers of the time, but uh, you know, the people who actually physically built the house, built the houses, built the buildings. And you can see that frontier quality of the 19th century, where we have these architects coming from, uh, you know, England and, and New England, uh, who were really master builders they were not really architects but when they came to mississippi they kind of transformed into architects because because they were the masters of what they were doing um and uh, so people like levi weeks or and william nichols uh you you can get this sense that they came to this place that had nothing i mean they they just were trying to get somebody to make bricks for them so they could build the old capitol or you know it's um It's really interesting to see how that that building uh, profession really had to be built up over a period of decades and even centuries. So um, I hope people will get a sense of that through reading the introduction and also by looking at at the individual buildings as they go around the state.
1: That's great. And is this... um... It's obviously in book format. Is this an ongoing database that you guys are doing as a part of a larger initiative or these one-off books or how does that?
0: Um, University of Virginia Press and SAH also uh, collaborate on an online database called Archipedia. So these entries will be available uh, through that over time. I don't think they're all on there yet, uh, but that's the idea. And then it could be added to... Uh, over time as well. And of course, uh, since both of those are academic institutions, everything is peer reviewed and, and goes through a process so that, you know, you can't just put your house on Archipedia as much as you might want to. So there is a process to get that put on there, but uh, they have other articles as well that have been put on there over the years uh, on
1: themes, you know, types of buildings and things like that. That's great. Did any um, did you uncover any interesting stories about architects or builders that you didn't know before when you were doing your research?
0: Well, I I've been researching architects in Mississippi for quite a while, I, and I always enjoy finding you know letters uh, that architects have written that are very upset about a certain project that they didn't get or that they don't like the design. I know um, there's one great letter. It's really very articulate um, uh, from N.W. Overstreet who was the preeminent 20th century architect in Mississippi. Uh, And he was very upset about where the Woolfolk building was being proposed to be uh, built uh, and felt that from a planning perspective that was just the worst choice possible and that, um, and he actually drew in the letter, this was to the legislature, he drew in the letter what his idea was, he sketched it out, and, um, of course, the legislature built it where it is and where they had originally planned it to be, so they didn't, they didn't listen to him, but he had a lot of good points, I, I think he made a lot of good points in his letter, uh, but architects, you know, they have, and, and that's great, they have very, uh, they're very passionate about what they do, and, uh, and how things should should work.
1: Did you did you find any buildings that um, did move at the last, or did have a lot of plans change because of architects that were upset?
0: Mm, I I don't know that I found that, but you know, it, different different, uh, especially in the 19th century. For instance, the Jackson City Hall, we we found through. The help of a federal judge, actually, uh, Leslie Southwick, who was who was researching federal courthouses in Jackson, he uncovered that the Jackson City Hall, which had been used as a federal courthouse uh, in its early years, had actually had to be demolished at, when it was only six years old. We thought it was built in 1847. The, I think the historic marker still says that. Uh, but he showed through congressional records that, in fact, it was demolished and had to be rebuilt uh, because it was structurally failing uh, because of the Yazoo clay. And, um, uh, you know, people, you know, had only been occupying this site and building buildings for 20 or 30 years at that point and didn't really understand that the clay was just such a terrible building material. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that, was, <clears throat> that was new information, and I think the book is the first time that's made it into print as well, that story. That's awesome.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for writing this book and compiling it as a field guide. I definitely will um, have started taking it around on my travels, so I know that many people will be able to enjoy it. Both, I hope so. I hope it will be something people have in their car. Absolutely. Thank you.
3: All right, well, let's move over to Vincent. Hi. um, Well, again, One Direction Home uh, is a history of South Jackson, but and I had it actually had several starting points. You know, as far back as 30 or 40 years ago, I was thinking about, you know, where I came from in Jackson and some of the stories I had heard growing up about Civil War action around the place. And we'd always, I'd always heard that the Lester family was the original family to own the Carmelite monastery until I started actually researching the book and found out a family named Morant was the family that built the monastery. So I thought, well, that should be the starting place for the history of South Jackson. You know, uh, a lot of people look at, you know, we want to look back when we were going to Scottie's or when we were going to, um, let's see, the uh, hamburger place, um, Chuck Wagon. But I, I wanted to show South Jackson's roots in Mississippi history. And um, the Carmelite Monastery was a plantation house. And I, I think that in a way, Doug and I sort of rewrote history because you remember, and Jennifer, you should remember this, um, for years in front of the Oaks on, um, I guess that's Boyd Street or no, Jefferson Street, you know, the oldest house in Jackson. And it was built around the 1850s. The Carmelite monastery was built probably around 1845 and it was a residence. It was a plantation house. And so, um, and I've checked all the other places that could rival it. And it, it still looks like 1845 is the, um, the earliest date I can find for any house built in Jackson. And some people say that the monastery was actually built maybe as, as early as 1835, but that I would have to say is not true because documents I found place the Moran family in Alabama as late as the early 1840s. And um, it's it's sort of guesswork, but as near as I can tell, 1845 probably is the time that the monastery house was built. There are still descendants of the Morants in Jackson. Many of them opened up their homes and their treasures to me for the book. And if you look inside the book, there are pictures made of two of the Um, family members' portraits. The late James Patterson, who was a good friend of mine since uh, we were both teenagers, uh, was actually the Morant family photographer, so it was easy for him to go to their home in Woodland Hills and um, and take the photos. Um, Also, the family um, allowed James to take pictures of some of their furniture. So this really provides a, a real look at the style of life in those days. Um, Jennifer, you probably remember Roy Wilkinson. Um, He was a longtime librarian and an art collector. I took the the photos of the portraits to Roy and he and I began to determine how old the persons were at the times of the portraits. So it it was some really exciting exciting historical detective work. Uh, The other piece of Mississippi history that I'm so proud uh, is in this book and it's in chapter two, is Shadowlawn. And um, Shadowlawn, at the time I uh, wrote chapter two with Doug uh, for this book, what we knew of Shadowlawn is it appeared sometime in the 1850s. We wondered if it might have been um, a house that was part of the Morant family um, holdings or well by that time the Lester family holdings. But it was after the book was published and I wrote an an article on the Chatelon tea room for Mississippi magazine that I made contact with a a descendant of the Gale family who moved into Chatelon in the 1870s and found out the house was actually built by a man who had one time been Mississippi's governor, Governor de Guillaume. And he was acting governor and he was perhaps acting governor for as much as 10 months, but, um, you have this this um, very nice structure um, and after he left the governor's office he wanted to settle in that area which was actually a very developing area of the Hines county uh, community at that time the lester's um would have been his neighbors when he moved in now the critical thing about shadow lawn is that After the Civil War, the Gale family, which had been a very prosperous family, Abner Gale had um, graduated from Harvard with a law degree. He uh, married a woman from Mississippi. Um, She was a very well educated person, and uh, they were a very genteel family, but they lost uh, many of their holdings during the Civil War. And Mrs. Gale left a, a wonderful I guess a portfolio or whatever you want to call it of letters detailing their experiences. And they are contained in the archives at the University of North Carolina. But one of the descendants of the Gale family had copies of those letters um, and she transcribed some of those letters for me. So again, you see this thing of descendants of these pioneer families, all excited about this project and turning over, family information and photos to me. Um, and it's interesting to read uh, where Mary Gale is, um, writing to a physician because the Gales suffered another indignity after the civil war, their home up in Satarsha, Mississippi burned. And with it was gone a very fine library, a fine piano, and they're worrying worrying about how to educate the children. And she wrote to the physician asking for some more time and paying their bills. Also the experience of losing a home to fire never left uh, Mrs. Gale, because when Windsor burned in Port Gibson, she wrote the widow of the man who built Windsor to express her sympathy and say to her that, you know, God will provide you, will get through this. So, you know, you see how there's this deep feeling about um sense of loss. The thing about Shelter Lawn that's so critical in Jackson's history as well is that the children of Abner and Mary Gale, particularly uh, Thomas the son, is responsible for many of the charitable organizations that we had in the early history of Jackson. Um, He was active in helping fund the YWCA. He also, provided the family home on North State Street for the municipal art. And um, he also, uh, I think, was probably one of the early benefactors for the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Now, the, the Gale's daughter, Jessie, took in two of her young cousins whose mother had died and his father was always off working um, and raised them. And they were to become, one in particular was to become, uh, the mother of one of Jackson's leading citizens, the woman who gave me all the information on Chatillon from the earliest and um, told me about Abner and Mary Gail. That was Jean Oglesby. But um, Jean's aunt, Anita, ran a tea room at Chatelon. Now Chatillon uh, it was across Terry Road from where the monastery is. It's actually the interstate now. But they had this tea room that was so noted and um, Eudora Welty later wrote about taking people to the tea room for fresco entertainment and talking about the frozen fruit salad that um, Anita Perkins prepared. And that was her specialty. Um, and by the way, the fruits for that salad probably came from the, um, the land because Abner had planted plums and he had planted strawberries. And they also had some pears. So, um, you know, it's interesting to, to look at how they used whatever was available. And they were actually poor when Jesse was raising these young girls and they were working the land and trying to support themselves. And then they started a tea room. Their garden tools were usually bayonets that they found on the property from the Civil War. Because much of the Battle of Jackson started... At that place, um, some people wondered if Shadelon was a hospital, and I say no. The Moran home was the hospital. And the most frequently asked question has been, "Where was the Confederate hospital?" You know, there have been stories that there was a Confederate hospital down across from where Sykes Elementary School, going way back. In fact, in the 60s, two very elderly women told my brother-in-law that area of the woods around there where the confederate hospital was located and i always have to tell people and it disappoints us. say there never was per se a hospital whenever a battle took place whatever house was nearby became a hospital and not often at the um, pleasure of the owners one thing i will say about that and then there's another house uh, that was on raymond road uh, It was an antebellum home, it it burned down in the 80s. It was used as a hospital as well, but uh, General Grant thought that that would be a good place because the man who owned it and built it was a doctor, although he was off of the Confederate Army at the time. But General Grant reasoned that, well, his wife probably has assisted him in surgery from time to time so she could help us. So that, that house was used as a Confederate hospital. So I'm just going to conclude by saying that this whole thing here, this whole piece on South Jackson to me, and I'm sure for Doug, it's kind of like a love letter home, you know, or it's a love letter to the descendants of, of our generation that this is where you come from. You know, this, this is a, a proud heritage you have. And, um, you know, and I, would, uh, I guess one other thing to conclude, you know, somebody in a, a review talked about, that I made South Jackson seem proletarian. And I thought, no, but, you know, I just pointed out we were lower middle class and, you know, that, that never occurred to us when we were growing up to us, we had the good life. So um, it's been a lot of fun. And, um, and I I look forward to maybe some more responses. That's great. Thank
1: you. And the book does, it's just full of so many interesting characters that have contributed so much to Mississippi and beyond. So it is a great book and um, definitely something for uh, anyone to be proud of for being from South Jackson or Jackson or Mississippi. It's great. All right. And we'll move on over to James Crockett. This is my book.
4: It's called, uh, Rulers of the SEC, Old Miss and Mississippi State, 1959 through 1966. As I mentioned earlier, this is the fourth book that I've written that uh, University Press has published. The Other three books dealt with corruption in Mississippi. Uh, The first one was about Operation Pretense, where 56 county supervisors got convicted of taking kickbacks from vendors. The second one was Hands in the Teal, which deals with the embezzlement of public monies in Mississippi. And the third one was Power, Greed, Hubris, which deals with uh, judicial bribery in Mississippi. Well, my wife says, uh, why don't you write something good about Mississippi? You love Mississippi. Although we live 20 years out of state, we love Mississippi. She said, why don't you write something good about Mississippi? Well, at the same time, my son, Clint Crockett, recommended that I write uh, my memoirs and Right away, I told him nobody's interested in the life of a CPA, university professor of accounting. I don't think that would go over very well. And he convinced me that I led an interesting life, and he he suggested that I I write about my life and and, uh, relate what's going on in my life with what's going on in sports in Mississippi because I've been a lifetime sports fan in Mississippi, especially Ole Miss, because of. That's where I got my undergraduate master's degree. So uh, he taught me into trying to do that. So I started writing my my memoirs, and I was about to wrap them up, and it dawned on me again, nobody's going to be interested in this. But while I was doing that, I've done some research, I found out something interesting that I have never heard before. There's a period between uh, the, the calendar year's 1959 through 1966, eight calendar years, Ole Miss and Mississippi State combined to completely dominate the SEC in the three big sports, baseball, basketball, and football. Eight and three's 24 championships were available during those, during those eight years. While Ole Miss and Mississippi State uh, combined to win exactly half of those, 12. That left left 12 other championships for the other 10 members of the SEC to share. So I thought that was very good. And uh, during that time period, I was at Ole Miss five of those years. I was an eyewitness to a lot of those sports in those days. It was convenient. I also graduated from Mississippi State. So I had an interest in both Ole Miss and Mississippi State. And it's kind of worked out beautifully. Because Ole Miss won six of those 12 and Mississippi State won six of those 12. It's easily uh, balanced. Ole Miss won three in, in football, three in baseball, and Mississippi State won four in uh, basketball and two in baseball. So I decided I'd write about that. And it was truly a labor of love. Uh, it's the great, greatest period of time in Mississippi history for collegiate athletics. Uh, and as I said, I was fortunate enough to be an eyewitness to, to a lot of it. So I did. And here's what a book is structured. First, I deal with four coaches that or, that coached all those teams. Uh, two at Ole Miss, baseball coach and a football coach, Coach Johnny Ball and football, and uh, Tom Swayze in, in baseball. And the two at Mississippi State, Dave McCarthy, uh, in basketball and uh, Paul Gregory, baseball. They were very different types of coaches, but they are very successful coaches. So the first, the first chapter deals with the coaches. And then I take it year by year and kind of go play by play and show how they progressed through the season and how they won those championships. And it deals, deals with the players who made the plays and the coaches who made the decision year by year, each one Kind of interesting. You got eight years there. And we're talking about three championships each year. Well, in that eight year period, there were four years on Mississippi Schools, over Mississippi State, won two out of three of those championships. In the other four years, they won one championship. So they, they really did dominate the SEC. So that's the middle part of the book where I deal with it year by year. Uh, And then at at the end, I wrote about the the, uh, players, the coaches they call the X's, I call the X's and O's because they do the X's and O's in the game, designing plays, teaching plays, using X's and O's. And Jimmies and Joe's are the the players. There's an old saying that it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmies and Joe's that win. Well, that's only half true. It takes coaching, good coaching, and good players to win. Well, there were many, many good players uh, during that period of time. I thought I would choose I, – I would talk about several of those great players to represent all of the great players, but there were so many of them that were, that were really outstanding. I decided to choose one player – to represent each each uh, sport. So I chose for basketball, the great Bailey Howell of Mississippi State, one of the greatest basketball players that ever played anywhere. I chose for baseball, Donnie Kessinger, one of the greatest baseball players ever. He just got honored again in Chicago. He played 16 years in the major leagues, six-time All-Star, great SEC player. And in football, I chose Jake Gibbs, who was, who was a great star at Ole Miss in football. By the way, Jake Gibbs and Donnie Kessinger, both are all-Americans of two sports, Jake in baseball and football, and Donnie in baseball and basketball. But anyway, I, I wrote about them to honor all the great players. Now let me back up a minute and talk about the coaches again. Great coaches. Johnny Ball, when he came to Ole Miss, they had never won an SEC championship. He came in in the 1940s. When he retired, he had won six, three of them during this period of time. Ole Miss has never won a football championship in the SEC before or after Johnny Ball. He was unbelievable as a coach. He is one of the greatest, greatest football coaches ever. He started with nothing and ended up dominating the SEC for a period of time and winning all kinds of championships. Babe McCarthy is the same way. And Babe McCarthy, when he went to Mississippi State, Mississippi State had won 37% of their baseball games in the 10 years before he got there. 37%. They had never won anything in basketball. He was a junior high basketball coach when Duty Noble hired him as head basketball coach at Mississippi State. He he was an officer in the Air Force in World War II. And he had coached Air Force teams that were big winners. But he was coaching junior high (laughs) high basketball in Meridian, when Doody Noble hired him to be head coach at Mississippi State. Somebody said, that's that's crazy hiring a junior high basketball coach. And Doody Noble said, well, they play like junior high players. So I I got him a junior high (laughs) coach. Well, he ended up winning four SEC championships in Mississippi. And during this time, he had two teams, one of them led by Bailey Howell, that uh, went 24 and 1. 24 and 1. Neither one of those teams got to go to the NCAA tournament because of an informal policy about playing integrated teams. Finally, one of them that won the championship broke the color barrier, and it's very famous uh, when they slipped off to. Uh, at night, and they stepped out to Michigan to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, that team did not win 24, go 24 1, but they got to go to the NCAA tournament and brought the probe there, which was one of the best things that happened during that time period. Uh, same thing's true, but there, he had two teams, actually had three teams that won the SEC that didn't get to go because of the barrier against playing integrated teams. Coach at Old Miss baseball coach, Tom Swayze. He had two teams that didn't get to go to the NCAA tournament for the same reason. But after, after Babe's team broke the he got to go to that all the way to the College World Series. But anyway, they were, they were great coaches. Their, their one-loss record, unbelievable. Uh, and we've never had anything like it after or before. All four of them were really good coaches, but the, uh, the greatest were Johnny Bob and David Parker. I mentioned Paul Gregory. He's a very interesting coach. Before he became head baseball coach at Mississippi State, he was a head basketball coach. He's the one that had a 37% winning percentage. <laughs> Athletic director there made a good choice. He fired him from being basketball coach and hired him to be a baseball coach. And he ended up, he won two SEC championships during this period of time, and he ended up winning two more, and he's in the Hall of Fame, all of them in Mississippi Hall of Fame and several other uh, Halls of Fame. It's just amazing that he went from a disaster as a basketball coach to a great Hall of Fame baseball coach. Well, they had different personalities, too. Babe McCarthy was a very outgoing guy, funny guy. Uh, the, coach, the ball players loved him uh, he made it fun Johnny Ball was, he was an intellectual uh, the, coach, the ball players held him in awe and if you ever hear him talk Jake Gibbs or any other now that played for it, they're still that way They it's look just like a, they're in awe of Johnny Ball there's good reason for that uh, he, he's a great coach but he never raised his voice uh I concluded the reason that he, didn't, he never raised his voice is he didn't have to. I mean, people paid attention to him. He was the original quarterback. He worked with his quarterback all week. Uh, and, and they called the plays during the game. Quarterbacks did. Uh, anyway, he, he was a great coach. Paul Gregory, again, he was laid back completely. I mean, his practices were informal. And he'd ask the players what they wanted to do. He never shouted or anything. But he recruited extremely well. He recruited players, a lot of them from the Jackson area. By the way, I grew up in the Doodleville area in South Jackson. He he recruited players that were well-coached and solid fundamentally. And he he basically let them do their thing. Uh, Literally, they did. But it worked real well in, in baseball. And uh, Tom Swayze is amazing. You know, the Swayze Field is named after him, and uh, an Ole Miss baseball player. I think he ended up winning a total of six SEC championships. Also, went to the College World Series three times, I believe. But anyway, he's he a great coach. But he he was the first football recruiter uh, in in the SEC. He recruited all, all those great players that played for. Johnny Ball, when he recruited football, he also recruited baseball players. <laughs> His baseball team were populated with football players and they did real well. So, anyway, uh, back to the Joes, lots of coaches again, the Jimmy's and Joes, there's so many of them. So, I chose those three I mentioned to represent all of them. And then I, I, I wanted to choose a team. No, no championships are won in the SEC or any other, any other football or student, yet, yet any other conference without good team play. I wanted to, cho- to choose a team that I thought it was represented the best team play of all of them. Well, I tried to do that and I I, I couldn't, and, and here's why: all of them <laughs> had. Good team play. I mean, you don't, just don't win without good team. And now all of them are really teams and not individuals. So what I ended up doing, there was a, there was a class, the 1960 recruiting class, excuse me, I believe it's was 1959 recruiting class that part McCarthy had at Mississippi State. He recruited no superstars that year, but he recruited Red Stride, Leland Mitchell, Joe Dan Gold, and Bobby Shiles, when they, you couldn't play as freshmen, you played freshman ball, you couldn't play on the barstead until you were a sophomore. And so they had their sophomore, junior, and senior years. They won every SEC championship that they could. They won all three of them that they could. Never been a group before or after those guys at Mississippi State. Uh, and they were Part of that when they broke the color barrier and, and snuck off to Michigan to play an NCAA tournament. So that's what the book is about. I, I got a lot of interest in it. It finally got published. I had a lot of interest in it, and it, it was truly a labor of love. So I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I, I know this: it's not going to be as enjoyable as writing that book. For us.
1: That's great. Well, thank you for sharing those stories. That that is interesting. That all the Coaches were, were so different and had different approaches. So I'm sure that um, many people will be interested to read more about that. That's great. Well, thank you all so much again for um, being a part of this panel. We appreciate all of your hard work and creating these books for all of us to enjoy and for many generations to come to be able to treasure and learn from um, the past in Mississippi. And thank you again to the Book Fest for having this virtually and helping us all get our stories shared this year, even though we weren't able to meet in person. Appreciate it and look forward to seeing you all in person next year in 2022 hope so thank you right on
0: mississippi is produced in partnership with mississippi public broadcasting for the mississippi book festival the south's literary lawn party